everybody. Welcome back to the Core Consult RX podcast. So today, Cole and I are going to do something that I don't think we've done before officially, mm. and that's going to have a uh, clarification Ooh. of the previous episode. I think that we, means we're admitting that we were wrong about something. Yes, which I feel like we do a fair number of that. Oh, yeah. However, this is the first time where we've corrected it right at the next episode. Oh, yeah. So. Good. Uh, when we posted the last episode talking about H. pylori, we had mentioned briefly about some of the diagnostic tests and things. And I believe I said that the two most commonly used tests most likely are going to be uh, the urea breath test and I think I said the blood test as well. Um, and then our distinguished mentor, Dr. Wayne Work, called me and he was like, uh, <laughs> that's not quite accurate. And, uh, and, and corrected our path. So um, to clarify, one of the things that we, we didn't mention, one, with the urea breath test, which can definitely be a good way of detecting H. pylori. Um, one thing that I didn't mention at all was the role that PPIs have and whether or not that affects the test. Most patients, if they're especially if they're symptomatic, they're having um, dyspepsia and all that, are going to most likely be on a PPI or potentially long-term PPI therapy. And so um, the problem with that is the H. pylori um, actually kind of go into like a more um, su suppressed state, I guess you, you can say. And that whole concept behind the carbon-13 or carbon-14 um, urea breath test is you're trying to get the, the urea to be cleaved by the H. pylori and allow the byproducts, which are going to be ammonia and um, CO2, as a byproduct, the CO2 is carbon labeled and so a radioactive labeled I should say that and so the the carbon itself is going to be what you're detecting so that byproduct of the CO2 on the breath is actually what you're measuring well if the patient is on a PPI and those H pylori are in more of a dormant state that process isn't happening so it can actually increase your chances of getting a false negative and so the guidelines recommend to ideally come off of PPI therapy for around two weeks um, in order to actually get the most accurate test. Now, if you get a positive test with that, even if they have, they're on, you know, PPI therapy, then it doesn't matter. Right. Um, but if you get a negative test, one thing to consider is if you did test with well, a person who was on a PPI to consider retesting after they've come off therapy if possible. Um, the other test, obviously, if you are going to um, do uh, endoscopy testing, then getting the histology, you know, getting a biopsy is going to be another good opportunity. If you're not going to do endoscopy, then either your breath test or the antigen stool uh, assay are, are both the recommended go-tos because the blood test, although if you get a a negative, then that it shows you that there's no that there's no active infection. Um, the problem is, is once you get infected, you get those positive antibodies. Uh, it's it's you get some weaning of that, those antibodies over time, but it doesn't necessarily rule out the fact that the person had the infection and it's been eradicated. So you definitely would never want to use that for um, con as a confirmatory test, but um, in a lot of cases, it could put you at risk for getting a false positive in um, H. pylori even detection. So not uh, even though it's very cheap and widely available, not one of the go-tos, right. like I said earlier so you know it's, it's like funny. an idiot we don't usually talk too much about diagnosis 
And but we did. <laughs> and that's what happens. There's a reason why, right? <laughs> that's what happens. Unbelievable. We need to get like a PA or an MD, like third yeah. third co-host mm-hmm. that can really like walk us through that. So, so there's be our our uh, diagnosis auditor. So anytime we say anything wrong, they just uh, you know they got a fly swatter and they just smack us right in the nose. Wow. I think that'd be the best way. Maybe. <laughs> we'll definitely It'd, definitely think about that. We'll call that plan B. Yeah. No. So sorry about that, everyone. So if you were listening to the last episode and we're thinking, wow, these guys sound stupid. Uh, and me in particular, because I think I'm the one that was running my mouth the whole time. So uh, yeah, there you go. It's been hopefully uh, fixed a little bit. Good. So today, mm-hmm. the real reason why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> no, end episode. That's all we had. <laughs> That'd be great. It'd be the best episode ever. Um, so today we're going to talk about congestive heart failure. Mm-hmm. And uh, specifically, reduced ejection fraction heart failure. Uh, we'll probably go back and do preserved ejection fraction heart failure and um, other kind of similarities later on. But um, we're going to talk through kind of this today and, uh, yeah, see how everything goes. Well, there's a new drug that's in the pipeline there that is. we'll mention. We'll go back through the pharmacotherapy stuff and all that, yeah. all that fun stuff. There's a lot more fun stuff in... Um Reduced ejection, fra- reduced ejection fracture versus preserved. A lot more studies, a lot more evidence. It's much more treatable, I suppose, Yeah. in a way. So, yeah, this, this will be a good one. I'm excited about it. We've done something with this. We did a patient case uh, sometime last year, and we talked through a fair amount of stuff as far as just the treatment algorithm. Uh, but we're going to go more into the uh, 2017 update of the guidelines um probably throw a lot of trial names at you so if you're not in the car you know have a pin ready but uh, otherwise yeah good so the first thing i guess we can kind of talk about is what the difference is between reduced ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction so as far as that classification goes we used to refer to reduced ejection fraction as systolic heart failure and the reason for that is um that's based on the failure of the contraction to in the blood uh, or excuse me the heart to actually pump blood out of the chambers of the ventricles um and that's we'll kind of go through that whole normal process in a second but if if it's more of a pump problem mm-hmm. then that's going to be the systolic heart failure the reduced ejection fraction um diastolic as they used to call preserved ejection fraction is it's a filling problem so there's right. less room in the ventricle to actually fill with blood and so uh, you're not able to get as much um, volume in, into the initial uh, heart as you normally would. Um, some of the kind of like classifications, if you will, the one that's most um, commonly referred to is the New York um, Heart Association functional classes. So the NYHA, um, we have one, uh, class one, which is considered mild as well as class two. Um, but one is where you have no limitation on physical activity. So any kind of ordinary physical activity doesn't cause any kind of excessive tiredness, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, class two, which is still considered mild is going to be where you have a slight limitation, uh, where you're comfortable at rest, but any kind of like ordinary physical activity could result in more like tiredness or shortness of breath than compared to someone who doesn't have any heart failure. Um, Class three or moderate is going to be where you have marked or noticeable limitations of physical activity. Um, Still going to be considered comfortable at rest, but you're going to have definitely less um, than ordinary physical activity, uh, or excuse me, less than ordinary physical activity is what's going to cause the tiredness, shortness of breath, et cetera. 
And then the class four, obviously, is the worst where you're going to have severe limitation on physical activity. You're not able to carry out any physical activity without kind of discomfort. And you could even have symptoms at rest. So that's like the most severe cases. Right. And uh, when you're, of course, delineating between um, HEF-REF is kind of how they um, refer to uh, reduced ejection fraction. HEF-PEF would be preserved. Uh, delineating between them, you'd more than likely get an echo, but there's other ways to uh, assess the ejection fraction. A normal ejection fraction is 50% or higher, uh, but uh, to be diagnosed with HEF-REF, that would be below 40%. Um, so your heart just isn't squeezing as well. Uh, you're not pushing out as much as you should be, so you're not ejecting um, enough of the blood that is uh, filling up the heart. And then HEF-PEF is considered um, preserved if it's over 40%, but you still have um, uh, issues with the heart. Yeah. So as far as like normal cardiac function goes, cause I want to get like a little bit of a baseline. So cardiac output, which is kind of where we always kind of start with is the, the blood volume that's ejected, um, versus the, the, and it's a, it's a, the volume that's ejected and it's a product of, of heart rate and stroke volume. So heart rate is obviously the, how fast the, the, heart, the heart is beating. And then stroke volume is the amount of volume that's pumped out of the heart. And, you know, the ejection fraction, like Cole was just mentioning, is where we compare that stroke volume versus the, um, the total volume in the actual ventricle at the end of diastole or the, the filling process. Um, another thing to think about is uh, mean arterial, uh, arterial pressure because um, cardiac output times the like total systemic vascular resistance is how you um, get mean arterial pressure mathematically. And so um, all of those things are going to be kind of intertwined um, because cardiac output is sort of the first thing that goes in, in heart failure. Um, there is a multitude of kind of like mechanisms going on that leads leads yes. to it. Um, and that's one of the hard things with heart failure and why we end up using multiple drug classes at baseline right. to get control of it. Um, it usually starts off with some sort of like a, uh, you'll see described as an index event or what like kind of causes the initial, those compensatory mechanisms to kind of kick in. So it could be something acute. So it could be like the onset of uh, MI, um, you know, that causing damage initially, or it could be more of like, a long-standing insidious process where like patient has uncontrolled hypertension for years and years and that's going to be what leads to um, eventually you know needing the body to kick in those compensatory mechanisms right um you know to kind of go through some of them we won't mention all of them but tachycardia um, and increased contractility are kind of the first things to go um and so you have this um increase in in heart rate because your body's knowing that or notices that you have a decrease or a drop in your cardiac output, which again is heart rate times stroke volume. So the first thing your body does is kind of be releasing that norepinephrine. Um, and that's going to kind of get the stimulation of that heart rate to increase. Um, and then that's going to lead to kind of a whole other uh, issue as far as the the way that the, the muscle, the cardiomyocytes are going to interact with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's going to cause kind of this increase in contra contractility for a little bit of time, but that's going to increase oxygen demand, um, which then can lead to ischemia, which then eventually makes the whole thing worse anyway, and 
stops or decreases the ability to pump in the first place. And so that's going to decrease stroke line, which then throws right. off cardiac output anyway. Exactly. Um, fluid retention is another thing that your body's trying to do. So uh, initially, um, it's trying to kind of increase preload. Um, and so your body will kind of inhibit uh, or reduce rather renal perfusion um, because that's going to when your body recognizes that you're having a decrease in your cardiac output, you're going to have this redistribution of blood away from like non-vital organs, mm -hmm. um, which then the kidneys interpret that as you're having this reduced uh, perfusion, you're having this ineffective blood volume. So we need to go ahead and kick that RAS system into high gear right. and retain sodium and water so that we can hopefully perfuse and uh, increase that sympathetic tone, um, which then leads to all the fluid right. retention, the edema and the increase in blood pressure from the sodium and all that that we see. Which we mentioned this a little bit in a different episode, but that's kind of referred to um, generally as cardiorenal syndrome. You're having issues with the kidneys because of issues with the heart, and it's this vicious cycle that leads to um, multi-organ dysfunction. Yeah. And again, you know, that increase in preload helps to increase your stroke volume initially, but eventually that curve that you kind of get where you're increasing stroke volume kind of flattens out, and then um, all the further increase in preload of that volume is going to then just lead to that pulmonary um, congestion, and which is where we get the term congestive heart failure. Right. Um, vasoconstriction, um, and increased afterload or another kind of piece of that. So vasoconstriction occurs in patients because, um, you're going to get this, you're basically trying to, to keep blood flow like with the heart. Um, so instead of the kind of helping to like redistribute the blood flow, the body, um, causes this vasoconstriction. So you're not getting as much blood flow away from non-essential or organs and, uh, or keeping it with the essential organs rather. And that then, I guess, leads to other issues like angiotensin two and other thing parts of the RAS system and and areas that can also increase things. Norepinephrine, mm -hmm. which then leads to the initial problem with tachycardia and all that. Um, and then you'll hear the term uh, ventricular remodeling, and so that's going to be where you get this increased ventricular muscle mass. Because again, when this first starts to happen, the the walls of the the ventricles become thick or they hypertrophy because you're you're trying to increase their ability to work just like you when you work a muscle a long right. time you're going to get bigger muscles yeah, in theory you, you can think of it you know the heart's a muscle so you can think of it as mike versus me if you you know if mike, my, mike, mike mike keeps working out and gets shredded and his muscles get really tight and stiff but then you have cole who just you know kind of does his regular work thing and his muscles are kind of regular and kind of flabby and stuff and flop you know Kind of watery, so it, it's good good at pumping out uh, blood and then uh, you know refilling with blood and pumping with blood. But if you've got Mike who's all thick and tough, then it's hard to fill with blood and contract appropriately. And that is why my cardio is terrible. <laughs> nope, it's just bad because I haven't been working out like I used to. <laughs> um, but so that's like the ventricular hypertrophy piece of it. But um, the true like remodeling is more of a broad term and that's going to talk about you know not just the hypertrophy piece but also um, changes themselves in the myocardial cells um, as well as like the extracellular matrix that leads to a different you know shape size of those ventricles and then eventually can lead to like the death um, of some of those myocardial or cardiomyocytes which then can you know, leave like gaps and that's where you get like 
like that saggy ventricle where it's no longer even able to pump like it once mm -hmm. was. It becomes dilated. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, there's lots and lots of things. We can kind of keep going through this forever, but there's um, aldosterone plays a role mm -hmm. because aldosterone, we always think of, you know, that is kind of being the last piece of the, the RAS system and kind of what driving that reuptake of fluids and like water and sodium and all that. But, um, it also, uh, produces this interstitial cardiac fibrosis. Um, and that can also lead to like increasing of the uh, stiffness that we see in like the myocardium, um, and leads to, uh, eventual like impairment of the diastolic function where you're getting this ability to fill. Um, and so there's lots of different things going on that, that play a role. Um, anything you wanted to add to that, Cole, at all? Not to the patho, but I think um, I, I just want to give a couple of stats on heart failure in general because it is uh, extremely common um, per this 2017 American Heart Association guideline update. There were about 6.5 million adult Americans who had heart failure, uh, and they project a 46% increase in prevalence from 2012 to 2030. Uh, so about 8 million more Americans, uh, adults, will have heart failure, they project. So uh, it's not going anywhere. So I would say that um, making sure that we have the people who we're treating on evidence-based uh, therapies and also staying up to date on whatever new we have come out with it is important because you're going to continue to see patients with it. Yeah. I think uh, that's the key, too. Is I, I, I can't remember the study. I'll have to ask uh, Dr. Wart. That's where I actually heard it with um, but or from. But uh, there's a study that came out that showed, it was more like a survey, I guess, but patients in hospital systems, the number of them that were actually on evidence-based, like not just right. drugs but also doses, was like, I want to say it was so low. It was like 1% of all heart failure. It was crazy. Right. And the guidelines, they have a little ac nice little acronym, GDMT, mm -hmm. which I believe is what? Guideline. Guideline determined medication. Mediated I'll target. It's managed something. I'll, I'll look in it. Yeah. But I, I, I know knew what you're talking about. I knew though. what it was last night. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it. Um, one of the other things to, you know, that we'll, you would potentially see, like, as far as whether or not you're looking at diagnosis or um, monitoring progression is uh, BNP. So B-type natriuretic peptide. Um, so that's going to be kind of synthesized and released from the ventricle itself as a response to pressure or volume overload. Mm -hmm. So as heart failure becomes worse, you get this elevation in BNP. And that's going to... It's another just kind of like way your body's trying to compensate for it, but right. we use that specifically to monitor how well um, your body's either, you know, per, you're reacting to the, the medication therapy to see if you're kind of stabilizing or if your heart failure is getting worse, we're going to see increases in BMP. Right. Um, or in terminal pro BMP is the other version of that that we use, the pro, pro drug version. And that's a biomarker that um, is emphasized in this new guideline that they didn't talk too much about in the 2013 guideline. So they have a nice little algorithm talking about uh, how to use that and where their strongest evidence is in diagnosis or prevention or prognosis. Yep. So, um, oh, oh, by the way, it's um, guideline-directed medical therapy. There you go. Yeah. Guideline-directed medical therapy. GDMP or GDMT. Bam. GDMP is a different thing. So um, what do you think? You want to just kind of go through all this? Sure. The treatment? Yeah. Um, 
Because the, uh, the, the diagnosis piece of it, there's there's so many different things that are involved with the diagnosis. Right. Lots For of our purposes, labs. like when we were in school, it was primarily um, this is their ejection fraction, so treat them. But right. that's that's kind of a pharmacist thing. So with um, obviously with when you're trying to diagnose somebody, then you're looking at um, common symptoms of heart failure. If you're trying to decide that this is what they might even have, so signs and symptoms, of course, weakness, lightheadedness, dizziness, so all those non-specific things. Uh, but you're also going to see shortness of breath um, upon exertion or even rest. And so that's um, one of the telltale signs, swelling in the legs and feet. So that fluid retention and then just overall fatigue, um, you know, would probably prompt you. And you use other comorbidities that they have to to steer you towards uh, testing and, and diagnosing heart failure. Yeah. So looking at things like um, not just the echocardiogram, like Cole mentioned earlier, um, sometimes you can use a chest x-ray mm-hmm. to kind of see for cardiac enlargement or pulmonary edema, pleural effusions, things like that. Um, you know, looking at uh, an ECG to make sure they don't have any kind of um, rhythm abnormalities. Uh, serum creatinine is usually increased due to the hyper or hypo rather uh, perfusion. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of different things. The BMP levels are important. Um, but yeah, so... Um, jugular venous distension, yes, lots of different things, but um, yeah, well, yeah. we won't go venture into that much just so we don't look stupid again. Before we do drugs, we do a little bit on um, lifestyle modifications, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Maybe not as significantly as diabetes, but you can, there can be some significant um, counseling you can do and things that the patient can do apart from medications that can help uh, improve outcomes or at least reduce hospitalizations because. That is one of, uh, other than mortality, I mean, that's a primary goal of heart failure because um, patients with heart failure have an extremely high hospitalization rate uh, because they have exacerbations when they're, uh, they have too much fluid retention and they start to decompensate, and then their hospitalizations are associated with increased risk of mortality, and so decreasing that as much as possible is um, definitely a good goal. So uh, decreasing salt intake is a good recommendation. It depends on which um, stage of heart failure you are in, um, whether it's less than 1.5 grams a day, less than 3 grams per day. Sometimes it's hard to counsel that um, with patients, but you know, getting out a nutrition label and showing them kind of what sodium means in things, or at least not adding additional salt to things uh, would be a good start. Uh, potentially fluid restriction in uh, patients who are in stage D heart failure to 1.5 to 2 liters per day. I think a really important one is checking daily weights. Um, So a scale is very important in these patients, even if they don't like to get on it, um, because they can have fluid accumulation, and if they're decompensating, they can have rapid fluid accumulation. Uh, So there's various recommendations, but a general rule of thumb, maybe 2 pounds in a day, um, if they've just increased two pounds in a day and, or more than five pounds in a week, uh, it might require, you, they might have counseled them to increase their Lasix if they're on Lasix, um, or potentially go to the ER if it's excessive. So, um, those things. And of course the regular ones like smoking cessation, limiting alcohol, um, an appropriate exercise regimen, that sort of thing. Yep. So, uh, I guess as far as treatment options, you want to start with loops? Start with loops. Just yeah. since that's more of like the PRN symptom reliever. Sure. So loop diuretics, uh, and this is going to be, 
they're used to kind of restore uh, euvolemia. So patients have this swelling, peripheral edema, because they have this fluid retention. We're trying to get rid of that and get them back to normal um, volume. So what loops are going to be doing is they're, they're working on that thick ascending limb and the loop of Henle and the nephron. Um, and that's where roughly 25% or so um, is sodium is filtered and reabsorbed. And so loops are going to help to kind of shuttle that sodium back out and get rid of it. Um, so loops actually utilize um, prostaglandin uh, to actually increase that renal blood flow, and that's going to help get rid of some of that sodium. And so if you co-administer loop diuretics with things like NSAIDs or COX-2 inhibitors, you can actually block that prostaglandin immediate effect, and you can lower the ability for the loops to kind of do their thing. Um, as far as like which loop diuretics are better than others, there's not a lot of data that shows that one's necessarily better than the other. Um, they're gonna, you know, you're you're basing it based off their bioavailability and things like that. But um, torsamide, furosemide, and buminidine are the three most commonly used. And then there is a fourth that almost nobody really mentions, um, but there's a fourth one called ethacrinic acid. And really the only reason why you necessarily need to use that one is because the loop diuretics have a, like a sulfa moiety right at the center of their chemical structure, and ethacrinic acid does not. So if you had a patient with a true sulfa allergy, I've only seen this one time where the patient would literally go into anaphylaxis if she took furosemide. Um, we had to put her on ethacrinic acid because it's the only loop diuretic she could tolerate. But, you know, that's something we, for whatever reason, we don't really ever mention. Um, I've never seen it before. Um, yeah, just that one time is the only time I've ever seen it. But uh, as far as, like, conversions from PO to PO, you're thinking one milligram of bumetanide equals 20 milligrams of torsamide equals 40 milligrams of furosemide equals 50 of ethacrinic acid. So... 120, That's 40, nice. 50 is how I remember that. Mm -hmm. And then all the I or PO to IVs are the same except for furosemide. So it takes it's it's a one to two ratio IV to PO with furosemide. Which is apparently controversial. Yeah. But that's, that's the what textbook's most answer. Yeah. yeah. Um so again, like not a whole lot of difference between them. There is some like small studies that have showed that torsamide is absorbed, um, the absorption of torsamide um, is a little bit better um, than compared to like furosemide. And so, and there's also some talk that tor of torsamide um, can modulate those neuro, neuro hormonal levels and it can help with cardiac remodeling. Now that's like super limited, but there's a little bit of evidence there. Um, so it in theory, torsamide could be preferred in patients that are having persistent fluid retention despite being on higher doses of other loop diuretics. Um, that's some. That's one of the tricks you could try if you're not getting uh, enough, yeah, um, enough um, diuresis. Okay. That's the word yeah. I was trying to mm -hmm. get to. Um, the other thing you could consider too, and you usually only see this in patients with you know, very high doses of loop diuretics because they do have a plateau effect where mm -hmm. they no longer work. You're not going to get any further diuresis. Um, but you'll see a thiazide diuretic called metolazone, which again, it's really the only time we ever see that is in this situation. Because um, most thiazide diuretics have effects on the distal convoluted tubule as far as, you know, affecting the reabsorption of sodium and um, potassium and all that. So 
that's not going to help us out a ton, but metolazone actually has some activity in both the distal convoluted tubule and the proximal convoluted tubule. And so in theory, if you're blocking some of the reabsorption of sodium um, in the proximal convoluted tubule, you're shuttling more sodium down into the loop of Henle and allowing for like a synergistic effect right. with a loop diuretic. So metolazone and loops sometimes go hand in hand when you're doing that, but you can diurese the patient really significantly, so you got to be careful right. with that. And they'll know that as like their booster, their yeah. water pill booster, so they'll call it. And make sure they take the uh, metolazone first, first, about 30 yeah. minutes before to let it actually do its thing. If you take them at the same time, kind of defeat the purpose. And only their fir- before their first dose of Lasix, so they're going to be taking it throughout the day. Obviously, you don't want multiple yeah. doses of metolazone. Yeah. So. But yeah, like Mike said, Lasix is definitely the most common. It's cheap, and... Um, I mean, that's really, that's kind of the, one of the best reasons. It's cheap. Yep. Uh, and it's, you know, the dosing's pretty, pretty easy too. Uh, there's three goals that you can kind of think of when you're treating a patient with heart failure. Uh, you want them to live longer, so you want to decrease mortality. You want them to feel better, so you want to increase their quality of life. And you want them to stay out of the hospital, um, so reduce hospitalizations. Um, ideally, there are a lot of drugs that we're going to talk about today that hit all three of those. Um, Lasix is not one of those because Lasix does not reduce mortality. So in the studies that they've done, it improves um, quality of life. It helps diuresis, so it's better for symptoms, uh, but it does not reduce mortality. ACE inhibitors? ACE inhibitors. The mainstay. There you go. So ACEs or ARBs are considered like the first-line agent to make sure you have on board in a patient with HEPREF. Uh, obviously, because of the activation of that RAS system, we want to kind of shut that process down. And so ACRRs are the way to go. Um, there's a whole bunch of studies which we won't really talk about um, just because, just take our word for it. <laughs> the ACEs have uh, been shown to decrease mortality um, in heart failure um, as well as hospitalizations. But um, one thing to consider is the use of ARB. So if a patient were to have a adverse effect to an ACE. Um, and so, you know, that could be something as simple as a dry cough, um, or something like that. Then we often wonder, okay, if they can take an ACE or can't take an ACE, should we put them on an ARB? Um, so the question comes up, ACE inhibitors have a increased chances of having angioedema. So if the patient has had angioedema on an ACE inhibitor, does that mean they are no longer candidates for ARBs in heart failure patients? Um, and so the guidelines do address this, and they actually say um, to use an, an ARB in a patient who cannot tolerate an ACE uh, for things, and they give examples of for dry cough or history of angioedema. Um, and that kind of comes from the uh, – there's a few different studies, but the one I always think of is the CHARMED alternative study. So CHARM alternative uh, was taking patients who could not tolerate an ACE and putting them on candesartan and then titrating up to is 32 milligrams or whatever they could tolerate. Um, there was 40 patients included in that study who had had angioedema on an ACE inhibitor, and that's why they were being switched. And at the end of the study, 39 of those 40 were – totally fine, had the reduction in mortality and all that. Um, there was one patient that they thought was having an issue, and then I guess they pulled him from the study. Um, turns out he was fine, too. There was no issue, but they already pulled him. So it was technically 39 out of 40. But realistically, if we could look back, I mean, 40 out of 40 was fine. Uh, and then some, there's some other, some other studies and stuff as yeah. well. But the guidelines do say very clearly, 
you know, use the ARB in a patient who cannot tolerate an, an ACE. Right. And Similarly, not with um, angioedema, but with um, tolerability, there was the elite trials, elite one and two. Um, the consensus, it was Losartan versus Captopril. The consensus was that there wasn't really a difference in mortality, but there were less adverse effects in the Losartan group. Um, so take-home message, equivalent mortality, better tolerability with Losartan versus Captopril. And then the dosing comes into play. Because we always, we with heart failure, we have set doses that we try to get the patient on if they can tolerate them. And so the, the one of the studies that I was thinking about is the ATLAS trial where they took less Cinepril, um, low dose versus higher dose. And even in the patient's blood pressure was controlled, they pushed the, the less Cinepril dose up and got, a, got better outcomes in heart failure patients specifically. So... I think we get in the habit of treating like hypertension where we're just trying to get that blood pressure controlled and then we stay at that dose. Heart failure, we're trying to maximize the dose because that's actually what's going to help with not only like that cardiac remodeling, but just the overall outcomes and, um, you know, mortality of the patient. Right. And in some cases you might go to higher doses than you're used to or more for other things. So there was the HEAL trial with Losartan, which was low dose Losartan versus high dose. Um, and there was um, reduced mortality with a number needed to treat of 77 over five years, and they went up to low start in 150 milligrams in that trial. You don't usually see low start in 150 milligrams, but that is evidence-based. Yeah, and that's and they had that study after the patent was off to the right. company that made Cozar so was like, nah, we're good. We're yeah. not going to pay the money to get so, the label. So the insert's not going to say 150 milligrams. So let's talk about the ARNI. So that's the other uh, medication in that ACE-ARB area, um, and that's the Entresto, so um, Valsartan and Secubitrol as a like fused molecule. Um, and so the reason why that's also in the guidelines now, um, if basically they say if a patient can tolerate an ACE or ARB, then you can switch them to an ARNI and have even less chances of mortality, decreased mm-hmm. hospitalizations and all that. And that comes directly from the Paradigm HF trial, right? Um, where they had patients that were on enalapril, and then they either kept them on enalapril or switched them to Entresto. And the primary outcome where they were looking at um, cardiovascular mortality or hospitalization uh, was significantly better with Entresto. The number needed to treat was 21. Um, when you break them apart, the number needed to treat for just cardiovascular mortality was 31. The number needed to treat for hospitalization was 36 and so on and so forth. Um, the couple of things to consider is Entresto does put the patient at a high risk for angioedema mm-hmm. um, because, and it's not the Valsartan component, it's the Secubitrol, which is a naprilysin inhibitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the naprilysin inhibitor, you're, you're not breaking down bradykinin and some other um, cytokines and stuff in the body. And so um, you have an increased chance of having angioedema. So if a patient has a history of angioedema on an ACE, they absolutely contraindicated to be contraindicated. on a, uh, on Entresto. Um, also, if the patient is on an ACE inhibitor to begin with, we want to make sure that we stop that ACE inhibitor for 36 hours before switching them over. Um, but that's important. And, and it's something that we, the guidelines specifically say a patient who can tolerate an ACE or ARB. So right. you're supposed to do a trial run of one of the two first before starting this instead of just newly diagnosed patient with heart failure, never been on an ACE or ARB starting in Tresto. The technical answer is to do ACE right. or ARB first. Though I've seen it done the other yeah, way. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But, but the watch-up period, extremely important because yes. then they might have angioedema and now it's all contraindicated and that really stinks. Yeah. 
hypotension is the big adverse effect with Entresto. Yeah. So um, more hypotension and symptomatic hypotension compared to an Alpro. Right. So number needed to harm in that case is only 21 as right. well. So you've got to make sure the patient's blood pressure can tolerate it. If they're perfectly controlled on an ACE inhibitor and their blood pressure's, you know, 115 over 70, got to use a lot of caution because right. Entresto could push them much lower. Right. So... All right, what else? So that's aces and R's, right? Yep. So that's where you're going to start almost all the time. Um, so you'll have that on board. You'll have uh, a diuretic on board, probably Lasix. You also want to get a evidence-based beta blocker on board, right? So that's considered GDMT, goal-directed medical therapy. Um, so you want to talk about the beta blockers? Yeah, sure. So there's three uh, specifically that have evidence of reduced mortality and uh, reduced ejection heart failure. That's bisoprolol, carvedilol, and metoprolol succinate, so the extended release version. Um, all these have gold doses. Um, if you're going to initiate or increase doses, you want to make sure that the patient is euvolemic at the time or it can uh, worsen. Um, yeah. You want me to go into some studies or you got something? So just to mention, because I think one, th one of the things that comes up is, you know, heart rate being increased, you know, tachycardia is, is your body's like way of kind of compensating for that reduction in cardiac output. Right. So at first glance, if you think about lowering the heart rate, well, wouldn't that lower cardiac output even more? Right. Um, so the beta blockers, it's not just a matter of that we're trying to lower the heart rate just for the heck of heck of it or lowering cardiac output because that seems a little counterintuitive but you know the beta blockers themselves are going to kind of slow down that um sympathetic nervous system activity like with norepinephrine and right. and it's leading to the increase in heart rate and those kind of things and basically can help slow the disease progression you you get antiarrhythmic effects if the patient does happen to have an arrhythmia which can be prevalent in someone that has heart failure um you're going to get some of the reversal of that ventricular remodeling right that's um, a big thing you're going to get a uh, reduction in like cardiomyocyte death um, that can happen when you get those uh norepinephrine and other catecholamines like kind of going ramp running rampant throughout the system um you're going to have improvement in left ventricular systolic function um and you're also going to help with like the ventricular wall stress because you're reducing the myocardial oxygen demand and so there's a lot of different ways that the beta blocker is actually helping. It's not just lowering the heart rate and so all good. Um, there's It's helping in multiple ways. Right. But yeah, like you said, there's three that we mentioned in the guidelines. Yeah. Carvedilol, metoprolol, succinate, and bisoprolol. Yep. And there's reasons for that. Um, so just so you have some studies in your back pocket, we won't go through all of these, but uh, the CIBIS-2 trial for bisoprolol, uh, the MERIT-HF for metoprolol succinate, um, Comet, Copernicus, Capricorn, all these fun C names for uh, Carvedilol. Comet was the one where they put Carvedilol up against Metoprolol tartrate, and um, Carvedilol came out on top, so that's one of the primary reasons they don't include tartrate version um, in the guidelines. Um, a lot of people will say that it's, it's usually dosed twice a day, but it probably should be dosed more often because of its really short half-life, um, so better to stick with um, beta blockers. You want to hit their gold doses um, kind of as soon as possible, but obviously you're you're going to hit these patients with a lot of blood pressure lowering agents at the same time. So you want to um, you know be cautious as you're increasing. Though a lot of them have long standing hypertension anyway, 
So if they have another hypertensive med on board, maybe we take that off so we can add these uh, to the tolerable uh, doses that we want. Um, also, carvedilol being centrally acting is going to lower the blood pressure more than uh, bisoprolol or metoprolol succinate. So you may want that, you may not, but that's um, something to be aware of. Yeah, and because the, of the negative inotropic effect, you, if you were to initiate a beta blocker at a normal dose, um, then you could actually worsen um, the at least the symptoms of heart failure or even cause an acute decompensation. Um, and so beta blockers, if you look at like lists of drugs that actually can exacerbate or worsen heart failure, beta blockers are on there, yeah. which is very weird to see. Um, but that's why. So in order to kind of minimize that, um, that we start low and then go slow, as mm -hmm. we say, um, and then realistically, you shouldn't be doubling the beta blocker dose any more frequently than at least every two weeks. Um, and then you want to just, again, see if the patient can tolerate it and up to the maximally tolerated dose, but it's going to take a while to get there. Yeah. So if, you know, starting off the patient on 3.125 milligrams twice a day of carvedilol and then slowly bringing them up from there. Right. Um, but don't just start at a normal dose because you could actually throw them into an acute decompensation and then have a whole other slew of problems. And that'd be a problem. Yeah. So that's why you want them euvolemic. And, um, yeah, I mean, one of the side effects of beta blockers in any person is exercise intolerance, and that's one significant symptom of heart failure. Yeah. So it makes sense. And as far as choosing between the three, you know, we have carvedilol, which is an alpha and beta blocker. Um, that's going to probably provide the most blood pressure lowering. So if you have a patient that still has some, a lot of room in their blood pressure, the carvedilol is definitely going to be the one to go with. Um, now, bisoprolol and metoprolol succinate, they're just selective beta blockers. And so the whole issue with why we don't use beta blockers in hypertension kind of comes into play where, you know, we're going to get in this initial decrease in, in uh, heart rate. But over time, because you're getting beta, you're getting beta blockade, but not alpha blockade. You that norepinephrine is still going to bind somewhere, right. and so you could t technically get total peripheral resistance or syst um, systemic peripheral resistance um, could be increased. So you, because of that vasoconstriction, and that could eventually lead to like an increase in blood pressure. So you're not going to get as much blood pressure lowering with the other two. Uh, and so if that's kind of how to determine, I think about it. if I have more blood pressure that need, if I need to lower the blood pressure further, carvedilol, if I don't want as much blood pressure lowering, metoprolol or, or bisoprolol. And then the other thing is if a patient has COPD, um, at the same time. So there's this study, I think from 2017, but doesn't have a cool name. So that's not, that's no good. Um, it looked at the three and lo we're looking at COPD exacerbations in a patient uh, that also had heart failure and, what they found was that there was no increased risk of, of uh, exacerbations with COPD, COPD exacerbations with the other two, but bisoprolol seemed to actually reduce the chances of having that. And the thought process is, even though metoprolol and bisoprolol are both selective, uh, bisoprolol is like 14 times more selective versus metoprolol being like three or four times more selective. So it's like the more selective of the two. Selective. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of the thought process there. So if a patient has COPD and heart failure, then maybe bisoprolol would be a good option. Um, but yeah, that's beta blockers. Nice. So those are your three big guns. And then... Always going to start with that. Yeah. 
And then the, the third agent to kind of add on is maintenance therapy that can also reduce mortality is an aldosterone antagonist. Because mm-hmm. remember, aldosterone activity is going to be heightened. You've already blocked the uh, angiotensin too, and so you're kind of thinking about the next step in the RAS system, which is aldosterone. Right. So spironolactone or aplerinone, um, either of those, the RAILS trial with spironolactone, mm-hmm. and then Ephesus and emphasis mm-hmm. with aplerinone, um, both decrease mortality. Yep. And same thing, though, you're starting low and then going up from there. Uh, you have to think about your potassium yep. waste. So, if, you know, potassium so wasting potassium is, an, sparing, is right. an issue. But now you've, you have an ACE or ARB on board, which is going to increase your potassium levels. And now you're adding on this. So if you have a patient that's potassium is at five, you don't want to, or above five, rather, you don't want to start this. Right. Um, and so you have want to monitor their serum potassium pretty closely. Yeah. Also want to monitor their kidney function. So they need um, a GFR greater than 30 to be able to go on one of these. And in general, you're going to be wanting pretty frequent monitoring of electrolytes, because just like Mike said, um, ACEs and ARBs affect electrolytes, aldosterone antagonists, Lasix, all of them. So keeping a good track on that, especially before you're initiating or changing therapy is important. Yeah. So one that gets brought up, those those are the three, the ACE or ARB or ARNI, it's, and then beta blockers, then aldosterone antagonists are the three maintenance meds, and then your PRM med is the loop. So that we're all on the same page. We're all following. We're, we're following. And then the other question I hear a lot is, what about digoxin? Because yeah. that's one Rundage. that was for a long time, you know, it was used in heart failure patients and was kind of like a main activity set or a main uh, drug, you know, treatment option. So digoxin, you know, where this actually falls into play. So um, the benefits from digoxin itself are coming from those um, neural hormonal modulating activities of it. So um, they're going to look like the the actual benefits where you're getting this blockade of that sympathetic nervous system, um, you know, you're kind of lowering that. Um, you're also getting like suppression of the parasympathetic, like the vagal um uh, system as well, but um, digoxin is actually going to increase parasympathetic activity in heart failure patients, which is then going to lead to a decrease in heart rate. And so you're going to be have enhanced diastolic filling. And so that's kind of where it's, you know, use is and why we used it in the past. The issue is that um, when you look at like the concentrations of it, the lower plasma concentrations, um, actually seem to be a little bit more beneficial when in heart failure patients. And so, um, the, uh, the DIGE trial was kind of like the first big study that looked at like the positive anotropic agents or activity rather of the drug, um, and showed that it basically doesn't um, doesn't increase mortality and actually decreases morbidity um, in patients with heart failure. And you know the again the that study when they looked at like the sub analysis that the lower serum concentrations were associated with decreased mortality, um, and then the higher concentrations were not. So if you are going to actually put a patient on DIG, um, then it's going to be you want to have a serum DIG concentration of 0.5 to 0.9 nanograms per milliliter is kind of like the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what you're going to get at is you're not going to get a decrease in um, necessarily mortality. Right. Um, so you still want to use 
the main drugs that we've already talked about as kind of first line agents. And then if you're still having symptoms, if you are still, you know, having hospitalizations from acute, acute decompensation, then this is one, um, to kind of consider, um, the, the other thing is if a patient has some kind of like AFib or something yeah. going on, then you could potentially add this to the beta blocker and get some additional benefit. Right. Yeah. The guidelines don't really have a great place for it, but, yeah. um, it is an option. Yeah. I would, again, if you still need symptom relief after you've had all those other, you know, issues that, um, or all those other first line agents, then you could consider DIG, but it's really the main benefits going to be coming from reducing hospitalizations, not necessarily okay. mortality. So it's nice hitting all three of our goals. Now, another one that does hit all three of our goals, but in a special population, um, is, um, Bidil. So that's hydralazine and isosorbide, uh, dinitrate. The, the trial that that's based on is the AHEFT trial. It's a fixed dose combination of those two. Uh, there was mortality benefit, uh, but specifically in African-American patients, and there's also reduced hospitalizations. Um, so the guidelines do uh, have a place for that. That's in New York Heart Association, class three to four, um, after the uh, ACE or R beta blocker uh, Lasix combos uh, in African-American patients, that uh, is an option. Um, Ivabradine or uh, yep. Corlinor is another drug you may see out there. So this drug um, is going to inhibit the IF channel, um, which is found uh, in the sinus node. Um, and basically, you are getting this, this depolarization of the sinus node basically will give you this slowing of the heart rate, but it's not going to affect like uh, AV conduction or blood pressure, things like that. And so it's, it's really there because we've seen that um, increases in heart rate, specifically resting heart rate, can um, lead to worse outcomes with heart failure. Once a patient is on a beta blocker and then their heart rate is still above, their resting heart rate is still above 70 beats per minute, then this drug may be something that you could potentially add on. The problem is, in, you know, I don't know if they've changed this or not, I haven't looked, but the European guidelines originally said that this drug will decrease uh, mortality and hospitalizations. So if you look at the SHIFT trial that actually got this approved, the SHIFT trial, their primary outcome was that composite, and it was statistically significant, and so great. The problem is that when you break it up into the sub, uh, the secondary outcomes, and you look at them individually, mortality was not decreased significantly. It was only hospitalizations. Right. So when we got it approved in this country, the FDA was like, you can't put mortality benefit on your label if that's not actually been proven out. So they made them uh, list just decreasing hospitalizations. It will not decrease mortality. So something to consider. Yep. So not a lot of people are going to be candidates for this drug. No, you're not going to see it too often. So yeah, maximally tolerated beta blocker, heart rate greater than 70. Those are the, like Mike said, those are the prerequisites. Yep. Anything else? Standard? Now, before we go into that new drug, I mean, there are some drugs, of course, you want to avoid in heart failure. Um, NSAIDs being an obvious one uh, that you want to avoid. But there's also like antiarrhythmic agents um, like uh, quinidine, lidocaine, sodalol, dronetarone. There's only a couple that are safe to use in heart failure if you have a situation where you need them. And that would be amiodarone and defetilide. Um, also non-dihydro calcium channel blockers you want to avoid, verapamil and diltiazem, um, and uh, thiazolidinodiones like um, Actos and rosiglitazone uh, if they have concurrent diabetes would be things you'd want to avoid. Yeah, absolutely.
So you want to look at this new drug? Yeah, let's look at it. So for those of you who have uh, maybe not seen the results of the Victoria trial, um, which are looking at a new drug um, called Verisigawatt, um, they're looking at the benefits of uh, that drug in heart failure patients. Um, so Verisigawatt is a guanylate cyclase stimulator, um, and it's going to basically enhance nitric oxide activity. So nitric oxide is a uh, vasodilator, and so when you increase the availability of nitric oxide, um, you get this downstream favorable effect in heart failure. And so they're testing it to see that if, if it can hopefully decrease uh, mortality and hospitalizations. Um, what they ended up finding was that it decreased hospitalizations, but not necessarily mortality. Right. But if you look at their composite, of course, it, they did have a composite for cardiovascular death or hospitalization. Um, so that's how it's going to be touted. But secondary outcomes, when you split them up, uh, the cardiovascular death was not significant. Yeah. Um, I think uh, that it was well tolerated is what the authors ended up saying. Um, there was a, a higher incidence with hypotension. Um, and uh, who knows what the cost is going to be. But it's one of those drugs that it may be, again, an add-on. Uh, it's most likely going to get FDA approval. And so it's going to potentially be like an Avabradine where you have... Yeah. Um, it could be an add-on once the patient has, uh, you know, been on main mainstay therapy and they're still having hospitalizations. Maybe this could be something you could right. add on. Maybe but. in place of DIG, which might be a little more dangerous. This might be a little safer option. Yeah. Of course, DIG is cheap and this won't be, but... Yeah, yeah, but could be where it ends up. Cardiovascular death not significantly impacted is the moral of the story. That is the moral. Wah, wah. So doesn't hit our three goals. Only hits two. But if you go check it out, the Victoria trial. Yep. Um, make sure you uh, read through that because I'm sure that drug's coming. It's on its way. It's coming yep. in hot. Coming in hot. <laughs> what else? Anything? No, I mean there's a lot more you can go into, but I think we uh, definitely hit the high points. I think we got all the good, you know. Landmark trials in there. There you go. At least, uh, you know, give them a shout out. <laughs> They've been, they were waiting for it. Yeah. Cool. So we'll, uh, we'll call it good for that one, but we'll, uh, we need to do one on like acute decompensated heart failure. Yeah. Of and... course this was mostly, um, outpatient treatment, but there's, yeah. there's a lot more to go into if you have a patient who is decompensating. Yep. All right. So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, thank you guys for, uh, leaving comments and rating the podcast on iTunes. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, if you guys have any questions, our emails will be in the show notes below. Uh, if you want to text us a question, you can reach us at 415-943-6116. Uh, you can reach us on any of the social media platforms and, uh, we'll hopefully have some, some good stuff in the works for you that, uh, you guys will enjoy. So keep listening. Thank you all so much for the support and we will see you next time. Later.